Would you please stand for the reading of God's Word? This week we are in, back in John, chapter 8, and today we'll be reading verses 19 through 30. John chapter 8, verses 19 through 30. They said to him, therefore, where is your father? Jesus answered, you know neither me nor my father. If you knew me, you would know my father also. But these words he spoke in the treasury as he taught in the temple, but no one arrested him because his hour had not yet come. So he said to them again, I am going away, and you will seek me, and you will die in your sin. Where I am going, you cannot come. So the, Je uh, so the Jew said, Will he kill himself, since he says, Where I am going, you cannot come? He said to them, You are from below, I am from above. You are of this world, I am not of this world. I told you that you would die in your sins, for unless you believe that I am he, you will die in your sins. So they said to him, Who are you? Jesus said to them, Just what I have been telling you from the beginning. I have much to say about you and much to judge, but he who sent me is true, and I declare to the world that I have heard from him. They did not understand that he had been speaking to them about the Father. So Jesus said to them, When you have lifted up the Son of Man, then you will know that I am he, and that I do nothing on my own authority, but speak just as the Father taught me. And he who sent me is with me. He has not left me alone, for I always do the things that are pleasing to him. As he was saying these things, many believed in him. The word of the Lord. You may be seated. As I was reading the text for this week, it was brought to my attention that from verses 19 through 30, uh, the Pharisees asked three questions. We covered one of those questions last week, but we're going to include it again this week, uh, as it is one of the three that sort of uh, wraps up the vital questions that the Pharisees were looking for answers to. Or were they? This week's sermon title is, What's in a Question? What's in a Question? Questions are interesting in that they either convey information or they seek information. In our culture of passive aggressiveness, questions are often of the rhetorical kind. We like to ask questions to make a point. We ask questions that we really don't want answers to because we think that we already know the answer. And we do this, often we do this when we are disciplining our children, don't we? We like to ask questions like, hey, what are you doing? My sons have never heard that question before, surely. Children, when you hear this question, when you hear this question, it means that you're busted. It means that you need to stop what you're doing. Right? We see this kind of questioning often in the Bible, but not by those we want to necessarily emulate. The scribes and Pharisees asked that very question to John the baptizer when he baptized when he was baptizing the Jews in the Jordan River. Hey, what do you think you're doing? 
John doesn't record this exchange, but Luke and Matthew do, right? Who told you to flee from the wrath to come, you brood of vipers? That was the response. The problem with rhetorical questions is that sometimes the person or people asking them are lacking information. They're lacking vital information. And therefore, they look rather foolish and often judgmental when they ask it. Questions are good if they are asked correctly. What does that look like? Questions should have a clear purpose. Ever ask, or have you ever had someone ask you a question and you have the feeling or after they've asked it, maybe you've answered it, maybe you haven't, but you definitely have the, uh, the feeling of why do you ask? There's something missing. What was the purpose of your question? Right? A good question shouldn't have ambiguity. Is it clear of what you're asking? Is it simple? Have you used too many words that muddy the waters regarding what it is you're actually trying to ask? I do this all the time when I try to be cognizant or trying too hard to not offend. I can often muddy a question that I'm trying to ask. So I've realized that it's way better for a person like me just to be the sledgehammer that I am and just ask the question, right? Finally, there's an old expression regarding questions, and that is namely, don't ask questions that you don't want the answers to. Don't ask questions you don't want the answers to. When we ask questions, we should assume that we're going to be uh, answered truthfully, right? We should assume that we're going to be answered truthfully. If you don't want the truth, don't ask. It's pretty straightforward. Let's get to the text and we'll see. We'll have a look at the first question. They said to him, therefore, where is your father? Jesus answered them, you know neither me nor my father. If you knew me, you would know my father also. Verse 19. The first question. Is it clear? Is it simple? What is the purpose of the question? Did they really want the answer? It is clear. It is simple. But what was the purpose? As stated last week, the Pharisees used this opportunity to cast aspersions on the legitimacy of Jesus as a child. Was he, was he a legitimate child or was he an illegitimate child? Right? Was he really Joseph's son? What was the purpose of the question? The purpose of the question was to embarrass Jesus. It was to humiliate Jesus. And it was uh, used to throw cold water on Jesus' ministry due to his questionable birth. Right? They didn't want an answer. It's important. The Pharisees here did not want an answer. They didn't expect an answer, for they thought that they had Jesus cornered. It was a gotcha question. But what was the problem? The problem was that they didn't have all the information, did they? They didn't know Jesus came from the Father. They didn't know that. They didn't know that Jesus was born of the Spirit. They didn't know what they didn't know. 
Jesus is going to make them painfully aware of their ignorance. Jesus here shoots back a simple statement that in essence says, you don't know what you're talking about. You don't know me. You don't know anything about me. You don't know of the things of which you think you know about me are incomplete. The things you think you know about me are out of context. And because of that, you also don't know my father. You don't know me, and you don't know my father. Ignorance can be a real problem in communication. Assumptions can be a real problem with communication, and self-righteousness and a lack of humility are often a massive problem when communicating. So he said to them again, I am going away and you will seek me and you will die in your sin. Where I am going, you cannot come. Verse 21. There's much to say regarding this verse, so much that it would be absolutely no problem to make an entire sermon out of it, and I will try hard not to do so. However, with that said, I'll point out a couple of things that we need to consider. Jesus points out again that he is going away, that he is going away. The only caveat that he has is that wherever it is he plans on going, he has stated that the Pharisees cannot come that they cannot come, but more on that in a minute. Jesus here says something that I think is rather terrifying. Okay? You read this, if you're really reading, it's terrifying. He says, you will seek me and you will die in your sin. You will seek me and you will die in your sin. We need to recognize that there are two aspects to the seeking Jesus is talking about. What is Jesus talking about? We know that Jesus was talking about returning to the Father. We know that. Okay? We know that. Jesus was going away not to be seen again for a very, very long time. In fact, we are still waiting for his return. After the tomb was found empty... Do you think that the Pharisees threw up their hands and said, Oh, well, I, I guess his claims were true? Not at all. If you'll remember from Matthew's Gospel account, the Pharisees had Pilate give the okay for the tomb to be guarded. Remember that? Go guard the tomb. Because they were worried that the body would be stolen, right? And that the claim could be made that he had risen from the dead. And that's not what they wanted. They thought, you know what, we'll go make sure that this won't happen. Not that they can stop the raising from the dead, but they were expecting that Jesus' disciples would come and steal the body and claim that Jesus' body was raised. So how are they going to prevent that? Let's put some soldiers out front, right? After Jesus rose from the dead, what happened? The Pharisees paid to have a rumor spread that Jesus' body was stolen while the guards were what? Sleeping. What's the problem? The guards would never have slept. You know why? Because it was a capital punishment for guards to be caught sleeping while on duty. A capital punishment, meaning they were put to death. You got caught sleeping when you were on guard duty? death penalty. The guards were not 
most definitely not sleeping. If they could find Jesus' body, they could end the claim, they could end the movement of Christianity right then and there. Right then and there. Now I have to be careful here because the Bible doesn't say one way or another, but I would speculate, this is speculation, that the Pharisees had quite the search party. They were out looking for Jesus' body. You can be guaranteed that they had people looking. Did they find him? The answer is no. No, they did not find him. But the other aspect is truly, the other aspect that I want to talk about here is the truly terrifying one. By adding, and you will die in your sin, Jesus makes clear that where Jesus is going is somehow linked to his death and is linked to judgment. Remember last week, it was all about judgment. What is righteous judgment? What is a verifiable witness? We talked about that last week. So this is still linked to that. He's talking about judgment. The fact that the Pharisees will seek and not find. And because they did not find, they are what? They are damned. They seek, they cannot find, and they're damned because of it. We have often said in our Reformed circles, but Paul and King David quite state unequivocally that what? That there are no seekers, right? That there are no seekers. We see this in Romans 3.11 and we see it in Psalm 53, right? We've had our fun with the seeker-friendly movement in evangelicalism, haven't we? At least, at least Kevin and Ryan and I have for years and years, right? But what do, we, what do we do with this? What do we do with this verse? Jesus is telling the Pharisees that they will seek him but they will not find him and that they will die in their sins because they don't find Jesus. Is there some manner in which people seek Jesus yet never find him? Most assuredly. This happens all the time. Let me give you just a few examples. I'll even give you examples from the Bible. Okay? From the Bible we have the Pharisees themselves. What were the Pharisees about? They were about public show. They were about public acknowledgement. Matthew 23, verse 5. Jesus saying this. They do, they, the Pharisees, they do all their deeds to be what? To be seen by others. They do all they do to be seen by others. The Pharisees' pursuit of God was not a pursuit of God. But to pursue the attention of others, to have others think highly of them, to be important people in the community. They cared nothing for God, they only cared about themselves and used God as a means to that end. What else were they after? They were after power. The Pharisees were the lawyers of the day and part of the Sanhedrin. The Sanhedrin were the governing body of the Jews under Roman rule. Matthew 23 and verse 4, again Jesus saying, They tie heavy burdens, hard to bear, and lay them on people's shoulders. But they themselves are not willing to move them with a finger. They loved their laws. They loved making laws. They loved adjudicating. They loved enforcing the law. They were the powerful politicians of their day and they had no qualms 
No qualms in flexing their political muscle, even if it was under the supervision of the Romans. They cared not for God's law. They cared about the man-made traditions that they themselves came up with. All under the guise of what? Being godly. Being godly. Following after God. Again, God was not their concern. They only used God and God's law to further their political power and prestige. This is what made them broods of vipers. This is what made them hypocrites, as Jesus points out to them. How about Ananias and Sapphira? Remember them? Ananias and Sapphira, book of Acts. They sold their land. They held back a bunch of it, which, by the way, was their right to do. They had every right to hold back. It was their land, right? They had every right to hold back. Uh, a, a portion. But what did they do? They came to the church and they gave the remainder of, after they held some back for themselves, they gave the remainder of the money to the church. But what was their claim? It was the understanding that it was the entire sum that they had received for the land and they were giving it all to the church. They were trying to deceive the church. Why would they do that? Because they were copying Barnabas who sold his piece of property and gave the entire amount to the church. And Barnabas, because he had done this wonderfully gracious, awesome thing, Barnabas looked good. And sure, many were looking to him and thinking that he was quite the guy. And he was. But why was he? Because he was following after God, not after himself. He didn't do it. He didn't do it to be impressed, like to, for people to come to him and say how awesome he was. That wasn't his heart at all. He did it because it was the right thing to do in his circumstance. Ananias and Sapphira wanted some of that same positive acknowledgement. They were wanting the, the glory that they thought Barnabas was getting. So they did likewise, but they were deceptive in their attempt to get it. They lied. They weren't interested in pleasing God. They weren't interested in helping the poor. They were interested in buying the approval of others. That's what they were interested in. And what was their reward for such, uh, for such motivation? God killed them. God killed them. They weren't seeking Jesus. They were seeking prestige and glory for themselves. Right? One last example. Have you heard of the term simony? Anyone hear the term simony before? Simony comes from, the term simony comes from a man named Simon Magus. Do you remember Simon Magus? Also from the book of Acts. Simon Magus in the book of Acts, who after seeing what real power via the Holy Spirit looked like, approaches Peter and John about what? About attaining that power. He wanted the power of the Holy Spirit, which was only given to the apostles, so that he too could do miracles. He too wanted to lay hands on sick people and heal them. He wanted to perform miracles just like the apostles were doing. He thought he could simply buy this gift. Here's some money, he says 
to Peter and John, here's some silver. Give me this power so that I may too do everything you're doing. What was Peter's response? Gotta love Peter. Absolutely love that guy. Just blunt, eh? We can say Peter gave it to him with both barrels. That's a shotgun reference if you, if you weren't aware. May your silver perish with you. How's that for a response? May your silver perish with you. We have no record of Simon repenting as Peter had instructed him to do so in the lengthy diatribe that Peter gave it to him with both barrels. So we don't know if we'll see Simon Magus in heaven or not. But what we do know is that Simon wasn't seeking Jesus. Simon wasn't seeking Jesus. He was seeking the power of God that did not belong to him. Furthermore, he thought it was something that could be bought. So anytime someone tries to buy favor with God or tries to buy any gift from God, the term applied is simony. After Simon Magus's ill-advised attempt at gaining what did not belong to him. You cannot buy God's love. You can't. You can't. You cannot buy God's favor. goes back to our offering. Some people give an offering in order to receive God's favor and to receive God's blessing. God, I'll give you money if you in turn give me a job. Give me glory. Give me whatever. This is a form of simony. You cannot buy God's favor. Not in your offertory, not in any other way. You can't. The Pharisees, Ananias, Ananias and Sapphira, and Simon Magus are all good examples of people who look like they're seeking God. They look like it, but in fact they are seeking something else. A word to the wise. Many people today are seeking. Okay? Many people today are seeking. We in all our comfort and pleasure and full bellies today are finding out that there is more to life than money. More and more people are coming to this conclusion. There's more to life than stuff. There's more to life than comfort. People are seeking that which only God can fulfill, as St. Augustine said it. But they will never find it apart from Jesus. They seek, but they will not find. Why will they not find it? Because they cannot. They do not have the ability to. That's what cannot means. Lack of ability to. Where I am going, you cannot come, Jesus declares, that those who will not find him cannot come where he is going, namely, in this case, heaven. They cannot come because it is not him that they seek. They cannot come because they're not seeking Jesus. They're seeking what Jesus can give them. They seek the blessings of God. They seek the gifts of God. They seek the mercies of God. But they will not seek God. You understand? Paul Washer, a Baptist itinerant pastor, has famously said, they cannot find Jesus because they will not find Jesus. 
The unbeliever has no interest in Jesus. No interest in Jesus because Jesus demands things from the believer, starting with repentance. Starting with repentance. One has to admit to being a sinner in order to need a Savior. You must be a sinner in order to recognize that you need a Savior. Most people can't get past that part. I'm a good person. I'm a good person. How often do you hear that? I'm a good person. I don't need religion. I'm a good person. If there is a heaven, I'll go to heaven. You know why? Because I'm a good person. I haven't killed anybody. Those that do begin seeking, looking for a savior, something or someone to save them, they look to all kinds of things to save them, but they won't come to Jesus. Why? Jesus says, repent and believe and what? You will be saved. Repent and believe and you will be saved. This too is too difficult a thing to swallow for most. Can you imagine that? Something, I'll get to it more in a minute, but, but that's it? I can't believe it. Right? It's too hard to swallow. Why? Because mankind is inherently self-righteous. Mankind is inherently self-righteous. We're like Naaman. Second Kings. We're like Naaman who had leprosy. If you remember this. He had leprosy and when told by the prophet Elisha to what? In order to be cured he had to what? Go wash in the Jordan seven times. Just go into the Jordan, wash seven times and your leprosy will be gone. And what was Naaman's response? He was livid. He was livid. I am not going to do... This is ridiculous. I'm out of here. That's what his response was. Why? Because it couldn't be that easy. It couldn't be that easy. He had... Had he been told to pay a pile of money, he would have gladly done so. Give me all your wealth and your leprosy will be gone. Here it is. Done. He had no problem with that. If he was told to go on some quest to some far off place, he would have gladly done so. Humanity has no problem earning gifts. We have no problem working for favors. We have no problem working for our grace. Do you see the problem? I said those slowly so you could hear the problem. Did you get it? You don't earn gifts. You don't earn gifts, right? You don't work for a favor. You don't earn grace. Naaman was told, see that river, go wash in it seven times and your leprosy will be gone. Naaman couldn't believe it and it wasn't until his servant said to him, Naaman, what do you have to lose? What do you have to lose? Just go do it. What's the worst that's going to happen? You're not cured? 
What's it gonna take? Seven times? It's gonna take you, what, 15 minutes? All of 15 minutes to go in, do what he says, see what happens. What do you have to lose? What did Naaman do? He bowed his head, got off his horse, went into the Jordan, no doubt reluctantly, washed seven times, and his leprosy was gone. His leprosy was gone. Just like Elisha told him. Humanity is seeking for eternity. For eternity is in our hearts. Yet we look anywhere, we look anywhere but where eternity is found. And as the Apostle tells us in Romans, we do it willfully. We do it willfully because we hate God. That's the terminology. We hate God. And we love our sin. We hate God. We love our sin. So therefore we reject God. We reject eternity and chase after worldly pleasures which will inevitably lead us to where? Damnation. You will seek, but you will not find. I promised this verse wasn't going to turn into a sermon, so I better move along. So the Jews said, will he kill himself? Since he says, where I am going, you cannot come. Verse 22. Here is the second of the three questions. Will he kill himself? The question, simple. The, the question, clear. What was the purpose of the question? It seems that they were asking in order to gain clarification. Right? It's a reasonable thing to do. Ask questions to gain clarification. Why, why does he say this? How did they come to the conclusion that the appropriate question to Jesus' statement had to do with his death? That's my question. How did they come to that conclusion? How is the question of suicide linked to his destination? That's the link. Suicide, destination. Right? Once we see the question in this light, we can start to see how they came to the question in the first place. Right? It has long been taught in Jewish corners, and I believe Roman Catholic corners as well, if I remember correctly, that the lowest pit of hell is reserved for those who commit suicide. It's a big deal in Jewish corners. Right? It's considered such a heinous act that only the most depraved would do it. It is in this context that the Pharisees contemplate where Jesus is going. After all, where do you think they're going? Jesus has said, where I'm going, you can't come. Right? So they're assuming that where he's going is linked to death, his death, suicide. He's going to hell because what? Because the Pharisees are going to heaven. So the only way that Jesus is going where they're not going or cannot go is if Jesus is going to where? To hell. This question, again, is an opportunity for the Pharisees to take a shot at Jesus. They are the good ones. Jesus is the illegitimate blasphemer. Right? That's their thought. Where else could Jesus go that they wouldn't be able to follow? Their thinking is only one place, and that is the pit of hell. The pit of hell. But what is the reality? What is the reality? Again, the Pharisees are lacking key information. They don't have the whole story. And because they are lacking it, 
They refuse to believe. They refuse to listen. He said to them, You are from below, I am from above. You are of this world, I am not of this world. Jesus offers more information to help them see. Here's more information. Jesus makes the point that they are on the right track with regards to their line of thinking. They're thinking along the right lines, right? There is a differentiation between them and Jesus. Jesus declares that he is from above. What does that mean? When we use the term from, we are indicating what? We're indicating a location. We're talking about being from somewhere, right? Jesus starts by giving us a general overview. He states that he is from above and the, Jesus, or the Pharisees are from below. The Pharisees would have understood that the differentiation would have been between what? Between heaven and earth. They would have understood that. But Jesus is making sure by indicating that they are from this world, that he was from not from this world, that he was from above. The Pharisees may have been reminded of Psalm 115, verse 16, that says, The heavens are what? The heavens are the Lord's heavens. The heavens are the Lord's heavens. But the earth, he has what? He has given to the children of man. Seems pretty clear. If that's how they understood what Jesus was saying, they were on the right track. I think Jesus makes this point especially clear when he adds, You are of this world, I am not of this world. If Jesus was not of this world, but he was from above, then by default, then by default, according to Psalm 115, his abode is where? His abode is in the heavens. Whose abode is in the heavens? Psalm 115 verse 3 tells us, Our God is in the heavens. Our God is in the heavens. He does all that he pleases. And then Jesus continues, I told you that you would die in your sins. For unless you believe that I am he, you will die in your sins. Verse 24. Man, you could make a write a book on that, right? You could write a book on this verse. Jesus here may be alluding to Ezekiel 3.18 and 18.18, in which God, through the prophet Ezekiel, um, he introduces the concept of dying in your sins. 3.18 states, If I say to the wicked, you shall surely die, and you give him no warning, nor seek or nor speak to warn the wicked from his wicked way in order to save his life, that person shall die for his iniquity. But his blood I will require at your hand. Dying in your sins or dying for your iniquity is an Old Testament and a New Testament concept. In the Old Testament, salvation was through repentance and faith. Through repentance and faith. You turn away from your sin and you trust in the promises of God. Right? Trust in the promises of God. In the New Testament, salvation is found where? Through repentance and faith in God. Sound familiar? The wages of sin is death. 
But salvation is found in the Lord Jesus Christ. Salvation is found in the Lord Jesus Christ. If you repent, if you repent and you believe, you will be saved. If you repent and believe, you will be saved. If you believe not, you will surely die. You will die in your sins. There will be no forgiveness for you. What was their response? So, G, or so they, the Pharisees, said to him, Who are you? Who are you? Jesus said to them, Just what I have been telling you from the beginning. Verse 25. Here we have the last of the three questions. Who are you? Is it clear? Yes. Is it simple? Seems so. What was the purpose of the question? See, and this is where things get a little fun. Unlike the question that seems pretty straightforward, who are you? Our answer is what we might call a bit of a mystery. Why is it a mystery? The reason it is a mystery is because we really have no idea of what the purpose or the point of the question was because Jesus' response in the Greek, or, or John's Greek, we can say, John the Apostle wrote it, is this, the answer is known to be one of the most difficult sentences to translate in all of the entire Bible. We don't know how to translate it. The reason being is because there are a number of ways in which it can be legitimately translated. Listen to a few of them. It can be rendered as the ESV, which I just read, has it here. Just what I have been telling you from the beginning. That's legitimate. It could also be translated as primarily, essentially, I am what I am telling you. That's legitimate. It has been translated as, I declare to you that I am the beginning. That's an interesting one. Kind of has a twist on how you might understand that verse. The authorized version has it translated as, get this, listen carefully to this one. The authorized version has it translated as, how is it that I even speak to you at all? Your face says it all? Yeah, exactly. Where did that come from? But that is another legitimate translation of the Greek, believe it or not. And finally, but not lastly, we have everything I am saying to you now is only a beginning. I like this translation best. And it's not because I studied the Greek text myself and determined which one best fits my translation. My Greek is a little rusty, right? But because I think it answers or best allows us to better understand the remainder of today's text. Okay? That translation best answers the questions of how do we interpret the rest of what Jesus is saying. Let me explain. First, if this is how we interpret it, Jesus avoids the question, right? Jesus avoids the question. It could be that the question was a rhetorical one, more of a who do you think you are sort of thing, right? Or it could just indicate that they will find out in time. You want to know who I am? This is just a beginning. You're going to find out. 
If this is what he is saying to the Pharisees, that it's only a beginning, it means that there is much more to come. And this aligns very nicely with verse 26, in which he states that he has much to say about them and much to judge. There is much more to come, and he's really just getting started. If they don't like what he's saying now, and they don't, if you don't like what I'm saying now, stick around. You'll notice that Jesus doesn't declare that he has much to tell them, right? That's not what he said, but much to what? To say about them. Much to say about them. They are the religious elite. They are the heads of Israel. Over the next few chapters, we will see time and again how Jesus speaks to them. And especially how he speaks about them. Right? He has many judgments to render against them. But as Ezekiel said, without warning, the wicked will die in their sins. But those that could have warned them, it's on them. Right? Jesus will warn them again and again and again. He will warn them, but they will not listen. They won't listen. And in verse 28, Jesus speaks up or speaks about being lifted up. This is a reference to the cross or to his resurrection, or maybe he's talking about both. The Pharisees right now don't understand anything, but they will. They will. The warning, of course, is that by the time that they might understand it, it will be too late. By the time you get it, it will be too late. They will understand better everything that Jesus is saying now. They will better understand everything that Jesus has said in the past and will say going forward. One day they will understand, but by then the damage will be done. The damage will be done, and it will be too late. Finally, in verse 29, they will see and understand that Jesus and the Father are one. That Jesus and, and the Father are indeed one. They will see that the will of the Father was carried out by his Son, Jesus Christ, just as Jesus was saying. They will come to understand that while others walk imperfectly in the will of God, Jesus walked just as he claimed he did, perfectly. The Father was with him through it all. So what was the result of Jesus' extensive testimony? Jesus explained all this stuff. What's the result? As he was saying these things, many believed in him. Verse 30. Many came to faith. The testimony of Jesus Christ, the gospel message, causes the flock of God, those that belong to him, to hear his voice. If you are of God, you will hear his voice. And they come. Upon repentance and faith, they believe. It's a miracle. It is a miracle. Jesus talks people get saved. Jesus talks. Some hearts harden. Some hearts harden in their sins and iniquity, think the Pharisees. But some are saved. Some believe. So finally, in conclusion, I started off today asking, what's in a question, right? 
what's in a question? I'm going to close with, to, uh, I'm, I'm going to close this, my conclusion, I'm going to change it up a bit. I'm going to close with the question, what's in an answer? What is in an answer? The first question was, where is your father? Remember? Hasn't been that long, you guys remember? Where is your father? Let me ask you, pay attention please, let me ask you, where is your father? Where is he? I would hope that your immediate response would be to quote the Apostles' Creed. He ascended into heaven and sitteth at the right hand of God the Father Almighty. That's your answer. If you're a Christian, your answer is, My Father is in heaven. If Jesus ascended into heaven and is currently sitting at the right hand of the Father, then I guess we know where our Father is, don't we? He's in heaven. The Bible only talks spiritually about two fathers. There is God the Father Almighty, and there is Satan, the father of lies, the Bible tells us, the father of deceit, the father of murder. He was a murderer from the beginning, it says. All people, so pay attention, all people the world over from Adam and Eve until now either have God as their father or they have Satan as their father. People don't like to hear that, but it's the truth. And it's incumbent upon us as Christians to warn people of the wrath to come. That's our job. We need to warn people of the wrath to come. The lake of fire was made for Satan and his angels. The children of Satan will be cast into that same lake. Where is your father? Is he in heaven? Is your father in heaven? Or is he connected to a chain like a dog awaiting judgment? What's your answer? The second question was, will he kill himself? We all know that Jesus didn't kill himself, but he did what? He voluntarily gave his life up for his sheep. That's what he did. He gave his life up for his sheep, for his people. He is the good shepherd, as we're going to read in, in John 10. He is the good shepherd who lays down his life for his sheep. Jesus said to his disciples, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life will, will save it for my name's sake. He will find it for my name's sake. Matthew 16, 24, 25. The question I have for you today is, will you die to yourself for his sake? Will you die to yourself for his sake? What does it mean to die to yourself? It means that you will stop living for yourself. It means you will live for Him. That means what's important to Him is now important to you. Living to see His kingdom, living to see His kingdom come and His will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Instead of what? Living to build your own kingdom that you live according to your own will 
and your own wisdom. By the way, in the Bible calls manly wisdom foolishness. Wisdom apart from God is foolishness. By the way, that's a moral flaw, not an intellectual one. Christ died so that you may have life. Christ died so that you may have life and you may have it abundantly. If the Son sets you free, you are free indeed. That's what Jesus promises. Don't be the fool that thinks his shackles and deep darkness somehow represent freedom. Without Christ, you are a slave to your sin. If you are it not, if you are not in Christ, you are not free. You are a slave. And you are a slave to your sin and a slave to the darkness. But, but... Jesus bids you to come. Jesus bids you to come. Come and die so that you may live. What are you waiting for? Finally, the last question, who is Jesus? Again, Christian, your answer should reflect that of the Nicene Creed or at minimum the Apostles' Creed. Jesus Christ, the only begotten Son of God, begotten of His Father before all worlds, God of God, light of light, very God of very God, begotten, not made, being of one substance with the Father, by whom all things were made, who for us men and our salvation came down from heaven and was incarnate by the Holy Spirit of the Virgin Mary, and was made man and was crucified for us under Pontius Pilate. He suffered and was buried. And on the third day, he what? He rose again according to the scriptures and ascended into heaven and is seated at the right hand of the Father. And he shall come again with glory to judge both the living and the dead, whose kingdom still shall have no end. If you can't say amen, then your answer to that question indicates that you don't know who Jesus is. If you don't know who Jesus is, is from his own words, you don't know the Father. If you don't know Jesus, you don't know the Father. If you don't know the Father, it means that you are still in your sins and you are of your father, the devil. I would pray, I would pray that you consider these things. Consider what it means and how it affects your eternity. We are talking about eternity. If you don't know what eternity is, it means it's a long time. Don't delay, for tomorrow is guaranteed to no one. Tomorrow is not guaranteed to anyone. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you. We thank you that Jesus is the light of the world. We thank you that you sent him so that we may have light, that we may be set free, and that you have made a way for us to have godly peace with you. And it is through your Son, Jesus Christ. And we pray, Lord, that we know salvation is of you and it is from you, and that only you can give it. So we pray, Lord, that you would give 
your gift of salvation through repentance and faith in Jesus Christ abundantly and that you would give it today. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.